This is the podcast for the journal Genetics and Medicine, published by Springer Nature. It's the official journal of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics. I'm Cynthia Graber. These are unprecedented times. With COVID-19, we're not only dealing with the first global pandemic in modern history, but we also have an unprecedented amount of human genetic data, as well as technology and tools to quickly ramp up additional collection and analysis. For this episode of GenePod, we're speaking with experts in the field and at the front line of efforts to understand the human genetic side of this pandemic in an effort to save lives. Mark Daly is the director of the Institute of Molecular Medicine Finland and an institute member of the Broad Institute in Massachusetts. One of the truly most striking aspects of this is that you have so many individuals who are infected and barely know that they're sick, and at the other end of the spectrum you have individuals, some of whom are young and with no pre-existing conditions, who end up with a life-threatening illness from the same infection. And understanding that variation holds obviously a great deal of importance with respect to considering how we might intervene therapeutically or with vaccines if we had an insight into what the biological root causes of those differences were. David Miller is a medical geneticist at Boston Children's Hospital and deputy editor of the journal Genetics and Medicine. He says there are many potential mechanisms that could have an impact on how the virus affects humans and on the variability. Well, there is some preliminary data that suggests that there might be trends in people's genetic background that might influence their response. Um, One of the things that's been looked at so far is ABO blood groups, and there is some suggestion of a trend that people with particular ABO blood types might be overrepresented or underrepresented among the infected people or the people who either don't get infected or don't get as sick as uh, requiring being in the hospital. So are there any particular genes or variants that might have an impact here that researchers might be looking into to understand either this difference or that researchers might study to try to understand how the virus attacks and harms us? Yeah, certainly, you know, the thing that comes to mind immediately when we think about viruses is host defense and how does the virus get into cells. And we know from uh, experience with other viruses, there could be some type of interaction with a receptor that's present on the cell surface. And there are examples from HIV, for example, with people that have you know, less susceptibility to getting HIV infection. So in the case of the COVID virus, one thing that they've noticed so far is that there may be an association with angiotensin converting enzyme. Now, that's not yet sort of a ready for being applied in a clinical setting, but it's certainly an area of interest. Similarly, with the ABO blood groups, those are antigens that are present on the cell surface. And so it's possible that they could somehow participate in the host susceptibility to infection. All over the world, research institutions and healthcare facilities have jumped into action to try to contribute to the understanding of the human response to COVID-19. And countries with existing biobanks are in a unique position with regards to data they've already collected. In the past, we just haven't had the opportunity to potentially investigate uh, something like this using an infrastructure that has already been put in place. So it's going to be a great uh, proof of concept of you know, the original idea of things like the UK Biobank, which was to proactively assemble a large cohort 
and then be able to follow those people and see what happens to them. The, the original idea of it was to proactively follow them for other common disorders that develop over time, like cardiovascular disease and cancer. But now we have a situation where all of a sudden the world environment has imposed on this large cohort uh, a medical situation. One such country is Iceland. In many ways, we are in a good position because we have access to every single case that has been diagnosed. And now we are doing antibody screening, so we are also have access to those who were infected without knowing it. And we have access to information about the sequence of the genome of almost the entire nation. And we have a collection of, of healthcare information on most of them. So we have enormous amount of, of data on uh, those who came in touch with, uh, with the virus. Kari Stefansson is the founder and CEO of Decode Genetics. So we plowed into this. We had the technology, we had the know-how and the talent to dive into this disease, and we did it with, with ferocity. And uh, when you look back, or when I look back, there are moments when I feel that everything else I've done up to now has been a training for attacking this disease. Dr. Stefansson says he sees a number of potential mechanisms for the wide variety of patient response to the virus. One is that there are a number of strains with varying degrees of virulence, though he says the data to support that seems weak thus far. The second possibility is that this lies in the, in the genetics of, of the host, that there are people who have varying genetic susceptibility or vulnerability when it comes to this infection. And the third possibility is prior exposure that some people may have been exposed to other coronaviruses that have generated partial immunity. So I think it is all but certain that it is one of these three that is the major reason for, for the diversity in clinical response. And I'm absolutely convinced that there is a contribution from the genetics, but I cannot point you to a mechanism. Certainly not yet. Dr. Stephenson says one of the key methods to try to figure this out is a genome-wide association study to try to find the genes that seem to have some impact on whether someone has almost no susceptibility or whether someone gets dangerously ill. This likely won't be a single gene, but rather many genes, most contributing a small amount to the overall effect. And, you know, that kind of a complexity is our bread and butter. We, we do this all the time. Once you begin to see hits, see significant associations, the community is relatively well-equipped to deal with that, to take you know, the genes influenced by these variants or containing these variants and putting them into biochemical pathways, trying to, to understand this on the basis not just of single genes but pathways, etc. The big hurdle to get over is to get the first hit. Once you have that, this will begin to unravel. One challenge for Dr. Stefansson is, while he and his colleagues have access to the genetics of nearly everyone in Iceland, fortunately for them, but yet unfortunately for their research, they have a fairly small sample size of people who've been infected. What our need is, is exactly for the things we don't want. We would need more cases to be able to have a power, greater power than we have now, to, to find variants in the genome that associate with with either the risk of the disease or some of the features of the disease. What will help the team in Iceland out is an initiative that sprung into action more than a month ago, headed by Mark Daly. It's called the COVID-19 Host Genetics Initiative, and it's an international consortium that Dr. Daly and his colleagues founded late March. What we set out to do was simply to 
short circuit what is usually a process in genetic research where individual groups pursue a study in their local hospital or local research institutes with local patient bases, perform genetic studies, and then eventually several years down the road decide that, well, it would be great if we had a much larger study and then find colleagues nearby and in in distant corners that have happened to have performed similar and compatible studies. And so what we set out with, with this activity was to simply short circuit what we knew would be ultimately the process that would take place in the field. And instead of waiting years and years for studies to naturally grow up and then find each other later, start right away and initiate the collaborative process within weeks of the genetic activity starting rather than years later. As of the release of this podcast, there are already hundreds of partner institutions around the world taking part, with more than a 1,000 researchers joining in online discussions, and that number keeps rising. The focus deliberately isn't on personal gain or authorship or ownership of results, just a really massive mobilization of mind power, a way of making sure that everyone is sharing and collaborating as quickly as possible. For instance, if, say, a hospital in New York had a small subset of cardiac arrest patients, they may need more patients who experienced similar problems to try to tease out why. So the site serves as a networker, a matchmaker. That's exactly how we're thinking about it, because I think it also takes, in cases just like you described, we expect there to be many such things. And then and part of that is having a few really dedicated clinicians who really are studying this problem in their local group and finding three or four others around the world who in their hospital have the same focus and the same interest. And, you know, some really transformative things can sometimes happen when those types of of things are, are able to be put together. Dr. Daly, with so many different research institutions from so many different countries, is the actual collection of data a challenge? Do different groups use different metrics or measurements, for instance? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> um, to put it to put it simply yeah i mean i think there will be a lot of i mean there are a tremendous number of of opinions as to you know what should be measured and what can be measured and so forth and i think that's where there will be a certain very simple set of definitions of infection and severity of of infection and outcome that are things that can be broadly applied but are not, you know, obviously don't rely on specific detailed measures that are only available in a, in a small subset of studies. But there are an equal number of clinicians who think that to really get at the heart of the, the clinical problem requires, you know, a certain set of, of measurements to be taken on patients that are only taken in, in hospital and in certain settings. And those groups will nucleate around those ideas and, and drive them forward in the subset of institutions and, and interest groups that will uh, follow those. So yes, I think getting to a consistent set of definitions that we can bring into a genetic study in the first place has been a major focus of, of a lot of people's effort in the, in the first month of the consortium. So how about the difference in resources? Some members of the consortium have access to funding and technologies that others don't, right? Yeah, and, and that's been one of the, the very gratifying part of this activity. Is like in, the, in the first two weeks in which we, we started to build this activity, we said that if there are research groups at hospitals in places that don't have 
genetics facilities or in under-resourced parts of the world, we would receive DNA samples and, and perform genome profiling on those samples. And many other groups and some companies stepped forward to make the same offer in that first week as well. And so this has created some very nice, you know, partnerships um, in different parts of the world where researchers who don't have the resources or the, the facilities to perform this type of genetic analysis can find partners who can help with that activity. And I give a lot of credit to companies for stepping forward, both Illumina and Thermo Fisher Affymetrics have stepped forward to offer reduced prices on their products uh, for COVID-19 research. Uh, Regeneron has offered to perform free exome sequencing for research groups. Um, so there's there's been a strong commitment from the genetics community that this not only needs to be done in our own backyards, but we need to make sure that since this is a global problem, we need to make sure that the that the genetic studies are done on a, on a global level. How soon do you expect to see any meaningful data come out of these analyses and maybe even actionable data? I would say that the rapid trajectory at which studies are being launched and generating genetic data would suggest that we will have a very, very large and well-powered genetic study sometime over the summer. I'd say mid to late summer, we should have some very substantial genetic studies completed. And at that point, even some of the specialized and more targeted studies will, will start to reach valuable scales. So I'm, I'm hoping that it will only be a matter of months before some meaningful progress is made. Actionable is a, is a harder thing to define. I mean, the best case scenario is if you identify a genetic variant that implicates a mechanism that for which there's already a medication and you could repurpose a drug. And that's, you know, obviously that's immediately actionable in the best possible way, but you know, that's the best case scenario. And that's not usually the one that we're in, but that's certainly a major focus of, of what we'll be looking for. David Miller and Mark Daly both say the speed of the research is unprecedented because of the scale of the genetic samples available and the number of people getting ill all at the same time. Researchers are hoping to find data that point not to who can feel safer that they're less likely to get severely ill, but rather that the data will help give clues for pathways to treatment. That's the traditional or the sort of the, the usual trade-off with a GWAS study because you're dealing with uh, common disease where the effect sizes are not great. You can see trends in the data, uh, so you you know might see that a particular genetic background is giving you a twofold or threefold increased risk of becoming seriously ill with the infection compared to someone else who has a different genetic background. At a population level, that's meaningful, and it might point to biology. So the genetic signal might be related to particular genes and provide some hypotheses that can be followed up in terms of what's actually happening at the cellular level to create that effect. At the same time, at an individual level, whether you have a twofold increased risk or a threefold increased risk or just the regular risk, you're still going to want to be very careful about getting exposed to the virus. And if you do get sick, the types of tools that are available for treating it are pretty much the same for everyone. 
personally, I, I think that there will be some good value from trying to understand if there are genetic contributors to the rare individuals who are young and healthy and have an extremely severe outcome from this infection. That variability, you know, I think as in many cases in medical genetics in, in history, studying the extremes often gives us the first insights into the the underlying process in the population. But, you know, we will we will see. Genetics and Medicine is the official journal of the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics and is published by Springer Nature. I'm Cynthia Graber.